This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Power Shift, From Party Elites to Informed Citizens. And the author is Vaughn Lyon, Professor Emeritus. And Vaughn joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Vaughn. Yes, I'm here. Well, great to have you here because you're going to be the teacher, and this is very important. Everyone needs to listen closely because we need to become informed citizens, and there's some real, obviously, we know from uh, history and from what's going on right now, uh, politics as usual is usually not very good for the citizen. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I would, and I would uh I would add to that that politics is now so important. What the government does or does not do really shapes people's lives, even though they might not like to recognize that fact. But if you talk for just a couple of minutes about taking away government or even slashing it substantially, people realize that uh, that it is that important. And so that uh, when it is so important, the corollary of that is that people want to have a substantial or significant voice in deciding what that government is or is not going to do. And unfortunately, the present system does not give them that. They have to delegate that power to a political party, and that political party um, has its own agenda. It's not particularly, well, certainly not going to follow the agenda of public opinion polls, um, and it... uh, certainly is not even going to follow the agenda of the elected members. It's a top-down operation, and the politicians, um, the party leader, are going to follow the directions of party leaders. So there's a huge gap between the party leaders who are really running the country and the citizen working away at his job and paying his taxes. Well, in the foreword... Uh one of your supporters, he says, your goal is to empower citizenry, the necessary support for the strengthened government needed to grapple with 21st century challenges. And of course, without an informed citizenry and a motivated uh, citizenry and a mobilized citizenry, uh, things just stay as usual, but usually they even get worse. That's right. We have to find a way of breaking out of the box. And I think the the problem is that citizens want to have more control. Uh, Overwhelmingly, they they indicate that they want to control um, the person who has chosen to represent them. And that makes sense. Uh, If we hire a lawyer to represent us, we expect them to to do that and not to have, uh, not to respond to some higher authority. But one of the problems is that the, the citizens are not organized and they're not informed. And I don't think I want to uh, transfer power uh, to 24 million Canadians who are, uh, who are ill-equipped uh, to exercise that power. So what I'm suggesting in the book is that uh, in each of our 308 constituencies, there should be a, a sub-parliament, if you will, called a constituency parliament, and it would be elected and it uh, would work with the member of parliament to determine the, the kind of representation he would give his fellow citizens so that there'd be pressure on the um, MP from the bottom rather than all of the pressure coming from a party leader at the top. And the uh, MP then would be in a very strong position to say in parliament that he is representing his constituents now the problem is that the constituency doesn't have a clear voice. Uh, if you're talking about a constituency, there's 100,000 people. Well, what do they really want? Uh, right now, it's likely to be taken seriously or taken um, 
as the voice of the constituency, what pressure groups are saying. But what we need to have is a linkage uh, so that citizens can organize, become informed, have the time to study issues. These, these constituency parliaments would just be around 100 people elected in a, in a uh, constituency of, a, of 100,000 people. And they would really be plugged into the system and they would work with their elected representatives and say, go to Ottawa, and this is what you want. we want you to do when you get there. And uh, if they go to Ottawa and the leader of the party says do something different, then the MP would have a real challenge of trying to reconcile those two pressures. And it's a healthy challenge. But now the problem is that he just has pressure from the top and no pressure from the citizenry because really, as I say, they're not organized and they're not sufficiently informed that you or I would like to turn over power to them. And organization is power. Yes, indeed it is. And uh, uh, I don't think Canadians realize um, how much power they really have if they were to, to organize. One of the difficulties we have experienced is that the political parties control the political agenda. They control basically what we talk about. And, of course, <laughs> they have been very studious over the years in not talking about what the people want, which is an alternative to political parties. And so that uh, we have a lot of people, the majority realize it, really, who think we have to have political parties. And that's a myth. That's a fraudulent myth, which the political parties, of course, have bought into and spread, that, uh, yes, uh, you may not like parties, but uh, that's the way it is, folks. You've got to live with it. Well, my book argues you don't got to live with it. It would be very easy to um, organize, and very inexpensive, too, to organize local parliaments, to elect, elect local parliaments and let them um, speak for the population, which is now very poorly represented by parties. Vaughn, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you decided to take this tack. Well, I've, uh, I've gone through the uh, party mill, as it were. I, over the course of my lifetime, I've belonged to several parties, seeking to find out uh, how much influence people could party members could exercise through party machines. Uh, it came to the conclusion <laughs> very early on that parties wanted people to join them for election fodder. They wanted someone to tack up notices on telephone poles and do the, the odd uh, jobs of that kind. But in terms of, uh, of being serious policy-making bodies for the government, for the party that is elected, yeah, it's it's a ridiculous idea. They don't pay much attention to the uh, positions that the party's membership has taken. So I, I thought, gosh, there has to be something um, much more a much more significant way for people to participate in the system. And having reached that conclusion, um, I did something not very radical, but what we should do more. I listened to people. And the pollsters have been telling us almost for a century, if you can believe it, that people wanted their um, elected member to be free of party control. And uh, 83% of Canadians say that's the case. But they have all been brainwashed into thinking that's impossible to achieve. And so I felt very strongly that as a political scientist, um, it was uh, really important for the discipline of political science uh, to offer people an alternative to the present system of representation. I mean, we're, we're sort of the doctors of the body politic, if you will have, would, if you would. And um, uh, we need to uh, take that role seriously and realize that we're not uh, the employees of our universities or, or uh, the political system. We're the people who are supposed to be standing outside um, these organizations and uh, looking for the truth. And the truth is not uh, that we cannot have alternative to parties. 
and uh, we should be providing the public, leading the public, in a widespread discussion of those alternatives. So I, uh, I felt that, look, here we have most people wanting um, constituency representation, which would bring people much more, make people much uh, an integral part of the policy-making process. And at the same time, what we desperately need, and all the politicians admit this, is a much closer relationship of citizens with their elected representatives because the government now is tackling all kinds of very significant issues which, without widespread public support, they're afraid of making decisive decisions because that, they feel, will uh, will, uh, ruin their electoral chances. So just to give you one example, in Canada we've been discussing a power, uh, policy regarding global warming for about the last 20 years. But no party um, feels it's in a strong enough position to meet that issue head-on without losing the next election because there's, they have no way of reaching out and talking to citizens and explaining their position and not moving ahead until they have support from the public. So this is, I think... Uh, posed a real dilemma, and it's a dilemma that our children, if we don't do something about our political system, uh, are, is going to have uh, to deal with, because the problems that are on the horizon for liberal democracies are just growing more intensely, as we see with the current uh, economic problems and the current problem of trying to come up with uh, a sensible policy on global warming and a sensible policy on on immigration, the migrations of large numbers of people, all of these problems are going to get worse. And uh, governments that uh, do not have uh, a very close relationship with their citizens are not going to deal with them uh, without using coercion. Um, and uh, yeah, coercion is something that's uh, inimical to democracy, and we don't want to see governments getting... Uh, more powerful unless those governments have very, very strong mandates from the people they're supposed to be serving. I'm, I'm afraid that we can't get away from strong government, and uh, if that is true, uh, then we better make sure that we have control of those governments, and that's what my book is directed to. And you're hoping that your book will shake citizens out of their complacency. Absolutely. I think they're complacent because they don't know that there's, and I think they should be angry, but they they don't know that there's a very uh, simple alternative to the present system which would give them the kind of representation they want. And uh, I think the politicians, and I think some political scientists too, have been guilty of, of not opening that door to citizens and saying, look, you know, you're angry about the political system, you want more participation. It is possible. It is possible. In fact, it could be organized quite simply, and it would uh, result in you having the kind of kind of uh, participation that you feel is practical at this present moment. I'm not, a, I'm not uh, advocating anything very dramatic. I'm not saying, well, I've got a system which is dominated by one man, we'll go to a system where 24 million Canadians vote on every issue. Not at all. What I'm suggesting is that we expand the system to bring in these members of constituency parliaments, roughly roughly 24,000 of them across Canada, give them time to study issues, uh, give them time off work to study issues, uh, make sure that their member of parliament work with them and uh, developed a, a a position on the major issues facing the country, and then as the representative of their constituents, these MPs uh, returned to Ottawa, met with other MPs, and collectively they told the executive, which now tells them, now dominates them, it tells the executive uh, what Canadians want and how that puts them to work working on those. Uh, fulfilling those those policies. Well, we want to set the record straight. You're asking for a revolution, but you call it a quiet Canadian yeah. democratic revolution. 
Absolutely, because uh, Canadians are very open to reform. There's no need for for people to hit the streets or or for, for there to be violence. Uh, if you study the positions that our leaders are taking, they all, uh, almost all, take the position that there should be much more uh, interaction between them and their constituents. But then, then they hit that boundary. That boundary is the political party, and they're all members of the political party, and none of them are prepared to sort of break away and say, okay, if people want that uh, close relationship, it can't be established while the predominant relationship is the MP's uh, relationship with the Prime Minister. He's the big honcho. And uh, if there's going to be a really, another competing relationship, it has to be organized from the bottom up. And uh, that's important because our, our political leaders uh, are not uh, necessarily wise men uh, who can be trusted with the enormous responsibility of running a modern society. People in that uh, modern society, from all strata, all ways of life, deserve a, a, a voice in what is going to be done for and to them by the government. We've been listening to Vaughn Lyon, Professor Emeritus. He is the author of his book, Power Shift, From Party Elites to Informed Citizens. Vaughn, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's, uh, it's very easy. There are in a number of bookstores. Um, the chapters chain in Canada is... is uh, carrying the book, and a number of local bookstores are picking it up as well. Or it can be organized, ordered uh, online, of course, from the big uh, book distributors, and uh, or directly from our universe, the publisher. It's very easy to, uh, it's very easy to come to, uh, to find it, and, uh, and uh, I think people will, I think people will welcome the message that's there. It's a, uh, It's an empowering, citizen-empowering message. Thank you, Vaughn, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Very welcome. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. You're simply the best. Better than all the rest. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Journey of a Warrior. And the author is Gerald H. Turley, Colonel, U.S. Marine Corps, retired. 
And Jerry joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jerry. Good morning. Well, this, Pleasure to be with you this morning. Well, this is going to be a fascinating uh, journey with this warrior, General Alfred Mason Gray. Uh, you were very close to him, served with him. We'll find out uh, a lot about this warrior as you describe him. And you say this about your book. This is an unusual story about a Marine who rose to become the Commandant, four stars, and then proceed to the top and prepare his divisions and air wings for service to the nation in the 21st century. Against all odds, he is selected to become the Commandant. And we'll learn why that was, uh, all the odds were against him and, and the impact that he's had on the Marine Corps. Jerry, tell us about yourself, your service, and how you got to know this great general. I uh, was enlisted, uh, served in Korea, came home, went over as a PFC, came home as a sergeant. Uh, they commissioned me as a second lieutenant, off to basic school at Quantico. In the next uh, 28 years, I served in the 1st Division, the 2nd Division, 3rd Division, 4th Division. We only have four. And I served overnight, uh, overseas uh, in Vietnam. I was there twice. Uh, one time, uh, the first time with the U.S. Marines, wounded once there. Second uh, tour was with the Vietnamese, South Vietnamese Marines as a senior advisor and was caught up there and stayed there in Vietnam until the end of the ceasefire. Came home, returned to headquarters Marine Corps, moved on to a selection for colonel, became a regimental commander, and then moved on to 29 Palms, where the Marine Corps Desert Training Center is, and we train um, air-ground teams in live-fire exercises, called a combined arms exercise, CACs. Served there, and uh, until I retired, uh, I resided in California. Upon uh, President Reagan becoming the president, I was invited to accept an appointment as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, so as a civilian, I went back in and served the nation for another three years. After that was, um, during that time, I had re-linked up with General Gray. He was uh, first a brigadier general when he and I met the first time when I was a colonel. Uh, he saw me serving in the Pentagon and asked me if I would come and be a special assist to him during his tour. So for four years, I traveled with him was never preempted from any type of a meeting and so forth. And I could see this individual making history. I didn't know if it was going to be good or bad, but he was changing things almost on a daily basis, dramatic changes in this very traditionally bound Marine Corps. And as fate would have it, in the last six months of his tour, he becomes, as his tour as the commandant, he, the United States went to war in the Gulf, and everything that he had predicted and changed and demanded that we get out of coming across the beach and we learn how to operate ashore in maneuver warfare, fast-moving tanks, and so forth. All of those things came in and fitted perfectly into the, the Iraq War, and uh, he just proved that his vision, his determination, his brilliance in many ways, and he was controversial. Uh, did all the things right to make our Marine Corps better and more functional in the 21st century. A great, great effort. So the purpose of this book is to really focus on how one man can make a great difference. Absolutely. And uh, it, it's focused on young men, whether they're in the military or in the civilian world, in corporations, that if they if they have integrity and they see vision, don't be ahead to uh, don't be afraid to to raise your sights, so to speak, and make your contributions. Do what's right, and uh, and you will be rewarded in many ways because of that integrity and your vision to do the right thing. General Gray starts out as a private in the Marine Corps. <laughs> he certainly did. That's amazing. But he, he, he was in his third year of college when the Korean War came along. And so he quit, went into the Marine Corps. And to have a private with three years of college in your ranks is just amazing. And he excelled from there on for everything he did. From, he was a corporal, a sergeant, to a lieutenant. 
he just uh, but he was in the communications field and very strong in in uh, super intelligence and counterintelligence and that was his first uh, 10 years was in that until he was able to get an infantry battalion which everyone aspires to do as a lieutenant colonel and then he began to have an impact upon the marine corps now he was radical to some uh he was unconventional and how was he able to change such a huge institution rooted in such history as the marine corps I think that's really interesting. He, he he was controversial because he would always give us more projects than we could handle. And then they would come back to him and say, now, General, uh, these are the ten projects. You want. Which ones are the most important? He would never say this is the most important. He made him work at all of them. He said, if I do that, ten of them will fall off and two of them they'll work on. But I want them to work on all of these. And so... In many ways, he kind of was a schemer. He knew what he had to do. He knew the bureaucracy that exists in every staff, whatever the service is, even in the civilian world. To get things moving, to get things to change, you'd really have to be persistent and uh, and uh, push and push and demand response and backlash. And in doing that, uh, it took a year or so, but finally people began to say, hey, you know, these are some pretty good ideas that we've been working on here. So he he won them over, 90% of them, he won them over simply because he was showing there was a better way to do things. He saw a great change coming in warfare. It wasn't going to be traditional anymore, so to speak. Uh, terrorism was on the, the uh, horizon. He saw it and then prepared the Marine Corps for such battles? He did. I think his uh, early years there in the in the very, uh, what we call the Green Door, the intelligence community, and he was very, very exceptionally good at that, uh, primarily in the Western Pacific areas, helped him immeasurably as he then moved up the line because he could always reach back into the intel side of the house and go through that door and get information that others weren't well really aware of, and that helped him solidify his vision, what, what had to be done. So his determination to many of us was perhaps sometimes just being ornery and mean and uh, determined when in fact he had more insight than all of us had and he knew that changes had to be made and he wasn't going to fall off of it. He was going to stay with it. And at the same time, one of his uh, peers, Brigadier General Simmons, uh, called him compassionate. He was. He was very compassionate. Uh, I, I, one of the chapters in the book is the is the Beirut tragedy, where we lost the 241 men in in the big building here on the 23rd of October. And the I assume that his great tour of duty as a marine officer would be in combat, leading troops. When in fact, when these Marines were killed, he was the commanding general at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And when the building blew up, so did all the records of all of the individuals. They couldn't find them. So now we have tremendous amount of people lost, but we don't have any health and medical records, and we can't find them. And it was a period of great disarray. And back at Camp Lejeune, he said, this is what we're going to do. Anyhow. And he began to put a crisis center, a casualty assistance center together. And I think probably the amazing thing to me was, this was his finest hour in, in, in being a, showing his care and love for his Marines. Every one of those wives, those parents, brothers and sisters who came to Lejeune were able to meet with him and help him. And he attended over a hundred funerals of those guys. Now, how in the world can anybody do so much for people? And at the same time, it, it all, it wasn't just show. Twenty years later, he still, 23 years later, he's still meeting with those families on an annual basis at Camp Lejeune where there's a memorial to the Beirut tragedy. 241 men left, and he made sure that every one of them was taken care of. That's why the word compassionate comes out. You've written this not as a biography, so what would you call your book? Uh, the reason for the title is that you can't just look at this man in, in one four-year period. You've got to go back and look at him and the institution that he's working in 
and you put that all together and say, now, how does he fit into this thing? There are 29 combinants over the last 30 years, or the last 230 years, but very few of them have been looked at from the time they were a private, so very few of them, until the time he became the commandant. And if you have, you can't understand his decision-making process unless you are aware of the journey that he traveled as a major or as a colonel. He had successes. He had some bad failures. But he learned from each one of those. He never, and he never, ever lowered his uh, standard. He was always a pusher. We did it better. We can do it better. We can do it better. Quite a man. Well, he certainly uh, fits everything you're saying, and and this attitude of him, uh, it's interesting how some people, uh, we call them visionaries, or we call them radical, or they, you know, they're creating uh, revolutionary change within an institution, uh, some call him uh, rocking the boat, uh, but out of it comes uh, a much better a Marine Corps, more efficient, more effective to deal in all the challenges of the 21st century. I, I, I think that is a real insight here that you're asking. Now, here's the issue. Uh, in lieu of being at the flagpole, so to speak, in Washington, D.C., he spent all of his years in the field. He was a regimental commander, a brigade commander, that's a brigadier general, uh, a two-star general commander, a three-star commander. All of his years in the field, and, and and I say in the field, it, and he thrived by running to the, uh, the the woods in the middle of the night, walking across a young man, and talking and watching how equipment worked, how it didn't work, what could be better, what could do better with a new rifle or a new new vehicle. He gave us the uh, a light eight uh, eight wheeled the light uh, vehicle that he got from Canada on loan and. In doing so, this LAV, light armored vehicle, in fact, changed the whole structure of the Marine Corps. We were no longer walking. Now we were able to ride and move fast across the battlefield. So he brought us the ability to do maneuver warfare. Marines have traditionally lined up along the line conventional, much like the Civil War. No one gets between us. Now we said the ground is not important. The objective is important. So the speed in which we can move. So he cost us, instead of thinking of 2.5 miles an hour that we walk, we're now moving at 20 miles an hour. All of these doctrines that has been so ingrained in Marines had to be swept out and new ideas brought in. And as he did this, he really convinced more and more people uh, at all levels of command that he had a knowledge, uh, certainly a greater knowledge than anybody else about field experience, about doctrine, about where we should fit into the to the naval role, a maritime strategy of the Navy and the Marine Corps. He modernized all of this to the point that it, he just convinced everybody we were going in the right direction. He is described, as you have said, in different ways as a maverick. Is that one of the reasons he didn't end up in Washington? <laughs> I think that's a good. Maybe they kept him away from the flagpole. Yeah, exactly. Actually, he was more. He was more um, more concerned about the troops than that he was about anything else. He he had his letter in to retire. He was a three star, and he knew that in June a new commandant would come in, and in March he wrote his letter of resignation, as he would retire. And he set that aside, and as soon as the announcement was made on who was going to be the new commandant, he would submit, like all the others, we would submit his letter, and then the, comma, the new commandant could decide who he wants to pick out and who he didn't. So Gray didn't anticipate becoming the commandant. Just some freak circumstances allowed him to, to uh, be nominated at the top, and that was really the Senator Jim Webb from, from Virginia who was a former Marine, Navy Cross, Silver Star, medically retired from Vietnam. And he was the Secretary of the Navy. And he said, I want a warrior to lead this Marine Corps out of the malaise that we're in and into the 21st century. He went through all of them. And he didn't, he looked at Gray and tried to set him aside and, and he looked at others and they were all good. But he said, this one has so much field experience. This one has that demonstrated ideas that we could change things. And in doing so, he selected in the middle of the night, 
called General Gray and said, hey, I want you to become the next commandant. So General Gray was uh, not certainly not planning for it. He and his wife had already looked for a, a home up in the Virginia area, and they were all set to do those things when he was announced that he would become the commandant. Well, it's great to hear a true story of a man who doesn't fit politics as usual, which seems to be the uh, theme of today's uh, of happenings in government and in Washington and elsewhere. So uh, congratulations, Jerry, for writing this book. Tell us how to get the journey of a warrior. May I, may I make one comment? Please. Uh, uh, Gray was the type of a person that would sneak in the back door. <laughs> uh, and But everyone knew he was in the room. He kind of had an electricity to him. I mean, uh, he thrived on it. The troops would love him. They, they would say, cheer him and love him. Um, one time he was in the desert, and a Marine says, would you promote me a little young Marine? Or would you re-enlist me? And the guy said, yeah. The commandant says, yeah. They stood up on a tank in the deserts of, of Iraq and Saudi Arabia. And before he could give the oath, nine more Marines ran up there and said, sure, General, General, me too, me too. He had ten guys re-enlisting. That just, he was so infectious mm. uh, that uh, everybody loved Al Gray. Jerry, tell us how to get your book. Oh, the book will be uh, put out by iUniverse. It should be press of University of Indiana. By the way, that's a great publishing company. If you're an aspiring author, I would talk to those folks and look at their marketing and their building program. Excellent. The uh, university was very helpful. Uh, I chose them because of their well-laid-out plans. The books will now be come out of the university uh, presses, I guess, later this month in June, and it's already on uh, Amazon. And it's available, um, it certainly be, uh, the book should be across the shelves within the middle of July. Well, that's I'm kind a- of excited. I'm, I'm excited about it. His, it was not a labor of love, believe me. He, <laughs> he, had, he was a temperamental guy. And his mercurial in sometimes. But his story needed to be told so we understand that there are really some great people in this world who only, only pursue what's really best for the nation. And he did it. We've been listening to Gerald H. Turley, Colonel, U.S. Marine Corps, retired. He is the author of his book, The Journey of a Warrior. Jerry, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much. and look forward to talking to you again. Bye now. God bless. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host... 
Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, American Manifesto, Rescuing America by Making Congress Serve Us Instead of Itself. And the author is Robin Fawcett. And Robin joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Robin. Steve, how are you? Well, great to have you with us. Uh, You're very direct in this American Manifesto. We'll get into your ideas and your determination in just a moment. Let me read a couple things you've written so everyone understands the direction of this book. You say this, America is under attack from within. American Manifesto identifies the enemy, self-serving federal legislators, and proposes a peaceful legal solution depriving them of re-election. Well, right there, and we wouldn't have to go any further for an incredible discussion, but you also uh, highlight the current decline and the possible destruction of the United States of America, and you also propose to make federal legislators to work for us rather than themselves in only one way possible. And what is that, Robin? The only way I have thought of is to limit them to one term only in one house or the other, either the House of Representatives or the United States Senate, with ineligibility to ever run for another term in either. Well, we'll talk more about the impact of that. Obviously, there would be many critics of such a a proposal and a change to what's going on right now, the status quo. But let's learn a little bit more about you, Robin. Uh, Give us some details about your background and also why you decided to write American Manifesto. Well, I'll tell you the latter first. I decided to write American Manifesto because... I had started writing political pieces for friends uh, starting way back in the 2000 election when the election was in danger of being decided by lawyers and hundreds of lawyers descended on my home state, Florida, where I was born. And uh, being a lawyer myself, I'm not thrilled with the behavior of lawyers. I have very few close friends who are lawyers. And my son, then in, in boarding school, now a doctor, said, Dad, you ought to write a paper. So I wrote a paper called Essay for Chase. That's his name, Chase. And that's how it started. I think America is in very serious trouble, and I want people to start thinking critically about the things they can do to help, and one thing they can do to help is to elect people of a vastly higher quality and better character to these high offices. And about me, I'm a management labor lawyer. I represent employers in labor relations and employment cases. I'm a partner of a firm called Schutz and Bowen. We've been blessedly successful and happy. I work with over 200 exceptional attorneys and a great bunch of staff members. I'm happily married to Edith, uh, to whom the book is dedicated. I have two children, uh, Suzanne and Chase, and two wonderful stepchildren, Jennifer, a lawyer, and Warren in San Francisco, and three great-grandchildren, I was a University of North Carolina graduate. I was a lacrosse player in college and played a good bit since then, University of Florida Law School. And I'm a very, very serious lawyer, still working uh, in my early 70s, totally unretired. We live in Highlands, North Carolina, part of the time in my case, not that much of the time because I work most of the time. And uh, that's probably enough about me at the moment. (laughs) Well, that kind of sets the stage for more on American Manifesto. You're very direct, and you place the blame and the responsibility of the decline and even the uh, possible destruction of the United States. Where do you place that blame? Well, in the book, I place it on... Congress, that is the Senate and House, because that's what the, that's what the book is about. 
uh, how do I get away with placing blame on them in large part because they have the power to appropriate money. It's common and fashionable to blame presidents, uh, not only the current President Obama, but the pre past President Bush, all the way back to Johnson for spending money, but a president under the Constitution can't spend money. He can't spend a dime unless it's appropriated by Congress. And we have a money society, as we've had now for several thousand years, and the people who appropriate and spend the money are responsible for what happens with it. And Congress, over the years, has made countless promises to organizations and people in general that it can't keep. And we are now borrowing enormously more than we can ever comfortably or happily pay back. That's their doing primarily. And they weigh in on a number of different issues, uh, military issues. Uh, the majority in Congress now wants to deprive the military and weaken us militarily so that more money can be spent to keep the promises made by Congress to the takers in our society who have become used to taking more than they produce. I mean, I could go on and on about why I blame them, but you don't want this interview to be totally <laughs> uh, about that one question. But they, they're not the only ones. Right. The, the presidents are to blame. And one thing I don't touch on in the book, this may be for the next book, the bureaucracy mm. is also a problem. And I think that more responsible, term-limited congresspersons would have more to do with seeing to it that there's also suitable turnover in the bureaucracy. We cannot have a bureaucracy running our country. We have to have people who are accountable to us running our country. And this particular book, my first book, there may be others, this one focuses on, on, on Congress as well as the various forces that impinge on Congress and require them to do the various things they do. When people stay in Congress for such a long time as they have been and uh, probably will continue unless something has changed, uh, that, that character that they take into Washington, uh, you know, they always have such great, great ideals, but seems like while they're there, uh, the pressures, the the lobbying efforts, it, it really changes people. So, you know, with this one term, not everybody's affected that way. We would lose some good people. Well, we lose good people in the sense that a vast number of the best people in the country, who I do not think are in Congress at this time, don't run at all for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it costs way too much money to run for the Senate or Congress. And secondly, you have to beg people for money, which people of high character don't like doing. I won't even solicit for my boarding school because I just don't like calling people and asking them to pay money. I'd rather have them do it voluntarily if they do it at all. I think that the entire highest level of individual in this country wouldn't be caught dead running for Congress now because of the expense and the ignominy of having to beg people for money, not to mention the corruptibility that comes from begging people for money who then give it and then expect you to do things that may not be in the best interest of the country. So... Uh, the, I don't know that I agree that people enter Congress with high ideals. Uh, this gets to matters of opinion about human behavior, but I think the true behavior of a person comes out. Just as when a person drinks too much alcohol, their true nature comes out. I've observed in hunting, hunting for wild game, 
people's true nature, mainly men's true nature, comes out. Certainly in different boy-girl, male-female dealings, one's true nature comes out. I think in Congress, people who get there see money ahead for them, power ahead for them, and all they have to do is please the labor unions, please the NRA, please the environmentalists, placate the party bosses, kowtow to party bosses like Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi, uh, uh, and now you know Boehner in the House. I think people who come to Congress often start off with bad character, and then their behavior proves that. It's not so much that it changes them. Let's talk more about labor unions. That's your obviously your expertise. You represent management. Uh, you've represented manage- management for years. And we, uh, as we record this, uh, it is on uh, the recall election in Wisconsin. And uh, we won't know the results that, uh, before the end of this interview. But this whole mentality that the labor union seems to portray that uh, the governor is hurting the members uh, by all these cuts, and they never seem to talk about the the whole state was in debt, and he's now has a surplus. So what is it about that labor union mentality? Well, the labor union mentality, uh, first of all, is take care of the union first, and in the process, take care of the high-paid union officials uh, go online sometime and look up the LM1 or the LM2 of any local union or national union. You'll be shocked at the money these people make. Uh, and it all comes from membership dues. Unions don't publicize this, but unions are businesses. They are not charitable organizations interested in the welfare of the workers. They're big businesses interested in preserving and enhancing their own wealth and, and, and power. The Wisconsin situation is a microcosm of what's happening in this country, and it's a very interesting situation. Most of the money being sent to Governor Scott Walker and by far most of the money being paid in by labor unions is coming from other states. Uh, I myself sent some money to Governor Walker, and uh, the money is pouring in from labor unions all over the country. But, as I point out in the chapter on labor unions, it's not really their money. Legally, it is their money, but unions are different from businesses and law firms and doctors. Unions don't make a product. They don't sell a product. They don't have to make a profit. They don't really earn the money. They simply take the money and membership dues, and then they spend it the, the way they want. And uh, the unions recognize the Wisconsin situation as a real challenge to their power going forward and their money going forward. And this is especially true of the public sector unions. In the last 10 or 15 years, public sector unions, that is unions that represent state and local government employees, including police and firefighters have and teachers, public school teachers, have become extremely powerful. They have tons of money. At this time, they contribute it almost entirely to Democratic candidates, but that would change if Republican candidates began pandering to them. They'd contribute it to them. It just happens that Republican candidates don't do this at this time. The Wisconsin situation, which we'll know about sometime tonight, will, I think, be an indicator of whether the people in this country have waked up to the fact that governments, Wisconsin government and the federal government, are spending and borrowing way, way more money than they have and that they can afford to ever repay. You have chapters on Social Security, the health care crisis, federal taxation, the environment, uh, Iran, the Iraq war, uh, relations between nations, uh, the free market economy. It is comprehensive. The American left. The only solution, though, is 
your last chapter, just conclude this uh, discussion about your book, Robin, The Only Solution. What is it? Well, the only solution, in my opinion, that I have been able to think of is to limit congressmen and senators to one term only, to let them run for either the U.S. Senate or the U.S. House. I pulled four years out of the air. It could be five years. Uh, A friend in Orlando suggested four years. I went with that. But that's long enough for them to learn the job. And if they're in that term for only the one term, can't ever run for either house again, that forces them to focus strictly on what's best for America. They will propose legislation, and they will vote on legislation after researching it, and they will do it based on their own research, their own consciences, and their own judgment about what's best. They They may make mistakes. You mentioned earlier opposition. Of course there would be every... Every single member of the House and every single senator would recoil in revulsion at, at this idea. Uh, and the one of the arguments I've heard that I can easily refute, I think, is that it just takes more than one term to learn what you're doing up there. That's totally bogus. Uh, uh, becoming a good judge in state or federal court is much harder than becoming a congressman or a senator. And a really fine lawyer can start being a good judge almost from day one. does not require a lot of on-the-job training. Some of our best Supreme Court justices of the past uh, were lawyers who became judges for the first time when appointed to the Supreme Court. It It takes a certain amount of aptitude to be a legislator, but mainly it takes high character, uh, immunity from being corrupted and immunity from voting to please any particular interest. And I tried to be careful in the book. Obviously, it's not hard to know that I'm conservative and that I plan to vote Republican, uh, but I tried to minimize that. I tried to make this not a conservative diatribe or rant, but a plea that people who read it start thinking more critically about who we elect and trying to get a much higher and better sort of person in those houses. I don't seriously expect the Constitution to be amended in this respect. That would have to be initiated by Congress, and of course I don't think they're going to do it. As I point out in the chapter on taxation, in which I give some credit to Neil Bortz, and former Congressman John Linder for their idea about the fair tax, Congress has power. The Internal Revenue Code is one of their big sources of power. They're not about to give it up, Uh, and therefore I don't think they're about to ever propose a Fawcett Amendment to the Constitution to limit themselves to one term. My goal in writing the book, among other things, was to get people to start thinking seriously and critically about who to who to get into office, who to elect, who to get rid of, just to make them think more critically and carefully about it because it's so important. We've been listening to Robin Fawcett. He is the author of his book, American Manifesto, Rescuing America by Making Congress Serve Us Instead of Itself. Robin, tell us how to get your book. There are, uh, there are three main ways to get it online. It's available on Amazon, and you can order it in hardcover, softcover, or ebook. Uh, same with Barnes and Noble, or you can order it directly from the publisher, which is known as iUniverse, uh, small i capital U iUniverse. Uh, they will sell it to you. Uh, they're not very expensive, and uh, I guess anybody that wanted to contact me, I have some here. I eventually will have personal book signings, perhaps, but uh, the best way at this time will be online. I don't have a website at this time, uh, but 
you know, I would like to have the book read. Sales weren't the main goal. Having it read, having people think about these things we've been discussing is the primary goal. Thank you, Robin, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you. I very much have appreciated the opportunity, and it's been a pleasure to speak with you, sir. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.